0: Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly, and Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas to them instead. And answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do to him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God. Please be seated. In light of the fact that we are just a few weeks away from Christmas, this might feel like an awkwardly violent text to consider this morning. For the imagery of Jesus' trial before Pilate does not necessarily bring up the same warm, fuzzy feelings that that scene at the manger brings up, does it? We, like much of our culture, uh, find a, a certain comfort in the story of the birth of Jesus. And I say that in a, in a pretty broad manner, for even many unbelievers find a, a certain comfort and nostalgia in the story of Christmas. For in that story, there are those sweet images of, of a precious, innocent baby lying in a manger. Images that, while somewhat foreign, are, are familiar to many. There's the message of peace that it offers a message of well-being, there is an overall positive picture that, that we have in mind when we think of that birth narrative. And as such, many of us feel that to be the more familiar picture. We, we see us in that narrative, and we are reminded of the sweet promise we have in Christ. When we come to a passage like Mark 15, however, we find something that feels more foreign to us, don't we? For, for we see wickedness on full display. We see in the coming weeks horrific violence, brutality that is shown against Jesus Christ. And we are at times just amazed and astonished by that brutality. Many times we obsess over the gory details of these narratives because we think, oh, that is so foreign, that is so far away from me, I I cannot imagine something so wicked. And so as such, we, we distance ourselves from a text like Mark 15, instead of finding ourselves at home in the way we do in the birth narrative. While that is the common response, however, the sad truth remains that there's far more of us in Mark 15 than there is in Mark 1. Really, we are in the middle of this story in Mark 15, and we must remember that that while that is a precious story of Jesus being born at the beginning of the Gospels, that it was all for this purpose. Jesus being born was for the sake of Jesus dying. This is what everything is leading up to. And as painful as it is to understand as we read the text today, what we must understand is that the wickedness that is before us, the portraits of, of this lawless legal team putting Christ on trial, and the imagery of that, that angry mob that is crying for his crucifixion, those are images that actually reflect you and I far more than we'd like to admit. And so what is truly astonishing in the story is not then the brutal violence, for that is familiar to all of us. That is you, that is me. What's astonishing is Jesus Christ. What's astonishing is his witness in the midst of all of it. And so as we consider this trial today, my hope is that we we come to it with with open eyes and, and appreciate just the truth that it has to say, both about us as well as Jesus. And as a result of this story today, my hope is that we might be all the more prepared to appreciate the birth narrative, appreciate the birth of Jesus Christ, and as such, might we be all the more prepared to celebrate his birth as we will in just a few short weeks. With that being said, let me go and open us up in prayer, and we'll begin by picking up the story once again in Mark chapter 15. Bow your heads in prayer with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time today. God, as we begin to prepare, or as we are in the middle of preparations for Christmas, it is easy to become perhaps overly focused, if that is possible, on the birth narrative. And it is a vitally important story for our faith, for the story of your son coming and living amongst us is a story that we'll pick up once again this coming week. But as we consider that birth, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, might we not forget the entire purpose for which Jesus came? Might we not forget that Jesus came for the sake of, of being the sacrificial lamb for us? Might we not forget the fact that that sacrifice was required because we are hopeless sinners. We are utterly and totally depraved, God. God. And we are deserving only your wrath. And so as we consider the words of Mark 15 today, might we see ourselves in these lawless leaders? Might we see ourselves in this unruly mob? And might we see in Jesus, precious Savior, that ought to cause all of us to respond with awe and devotion, God? And in so doing, might we be all the more prepared to rightly celebrate his birth, remembering its connection to his death, burial, and resurrection? We love you, God. Please be with us this morning. Might it all be done to your glory. Remove all distractions from us, God, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. As our story opens up, and as we take a look at these lawless legal scholars that Mark speaks of, it is important to remember where exactly we are in this unfolding narrative of the Passion Week of Christ. For in the process of of covering this story over a number of weeks, it's easy to forget just how crowded this last day of Jesus has been. As the text picks up in Mark chapter 15 verse 1, we read these words that it is early in the morning and we're speaking around 6, 7 a.m. And yet you might remember that despite that early hour that the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, have already been very hard at work. For it was barely 12 hours before this point that Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. 12 hours, imagine that. And since that dinner, Jesus with his disciples headed over to Garden of Gethsemane. Very quickly after that, in the early morning hours, Jesus is arrested after being betrayed by Judas and being handed over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin then rushes Jesus to that trial in which they, in which they convict him of blaspheming the name of God, and in which they believe he is he is rightly um, up for his own execution. And so by the time that 7 o'clock rolls around in the morning, the Sanhedrin then is already well underway with their strategy. The problem, or the, the hurdle that stands in their way, however, is that those Jewish authorities, while having a lot of authority in their small Jewish circles, really had very little authority when it came to Rome, particularly when it came to capital punishment. They had zero ability to just kill Jesus Christ. And so as much as it must have pained them, and you can only imagine how frustrating it must have been to these Jewish individuals that saw themselves as pure, as much as it must have frustrated them, they needed the assistance of a Gentile pagan ruler. And so we pick the story back up again, and we see that early in the morning, the Sanhedrin binds Jesus up and takes him to the courthouse knowing that they must get him in as soon as the day begins to ensure that their strategy, that their plan can continue to roll out. Now, as we consider these first few verses of Mark 15, verses 1 through 5, we see Mark highlight really two different characters, or one group of people and the other character being Pilate. The group is the Sanhedrin that is characterized or summarized in those players of being the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Mark highlights these figures throughout his narrative, um, demonstrating and emphasizing the fact that they really hold a lot of the responsibility in this. They are the ones that are leading Jesus. They are the ones that are convicting Jesus. They are the ones that are making accusations. And as we've already seen in Mark 14, these individuals are by all means wicked. They are entirely dishonest, despite being so-called experts of the Jewish law, they are now lying and and breaking directly clear laws given to them in their Old Testament laws. They are then wicked, incredibly sinful. And yet as horrible as the Sanhedrin is, we see that the individual they bring Jesus to is by no means any better. For as that early morning begins, they bring him to Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, this Roman official that, was, that presided over the area of Judea from around 26 to 36 AD. Now, there's not a lot of details that, that tell us a lot about Pontius Pilate, but suffice it to say what details are available to us, both in the Bible as well as in ancient historians like Josephus, Pontius Pilate was, was far from a, from a proper, reliable governor. He was a horribly wicked man. He's described basically as Josephus as inept as heavy-handed, he was rightly despised by the Jewish people for just how heavy-handed and, and corrupt he was. At one point in time, in Judas's rule over, or of Pontius Pilate's rule, I should say, over Judea, he was guilty of stealing money from the temple to fund Roman construction. This is the man that the, the Sanhedrin is relying upon. At other times, you can see details of, of him uh, mentioned in Luke chapter 13 where Pilate is connected to a violent outburst against worshippers in which, again, an act of blasphemy occurs. Pontius Pilate eventually lost his job after he ordered an, an uncalled-for and unjust attack against Samaritans and had them slaughtered. Pontius Pilate was a wicked Roman ruler. And honestly, as you look at the details that are given of Pontius Pilate in history and in scripture, you can understand that the Pilate really represented everything that the Jews hated about Rome. He really did. He really embodied everything that made life for the Jew in Rome difficult. For he was pagan, he had no regard for the temple, he regularly went out of his way to to shame the Jewish people. Even within our story, you see him arguably using this term king of the Jews in this sarcastic, heavy-handed manner, clearly mocking this religious sect. And all that he did and all that he said and all that he believed in, Pilate represented the sort of rule that any godly, pure Jewish person would have disdained, would have wrestled with. And yet, despite his clear wickedness, despite his, his open blasphemy, This is the man that the Sanhedrin hands Jesus Christ over to. This is the man that they hope will will help further their plans of execution. Now, as the Sanhedrin brings Jesus before Pilate, and as they bring their accusations against Jesus, you see that that their legal strategy has shifted a bit, hasn't it? For again, look at at Mark chapter 15, if you will, in verse 2. Pilate questioned him, that is, Pilate questioned Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? If you recall back in Mark 14, this was not the language that the Jewish people used, was it? If you look back at 14, the the concern that these Jewish leaders supposedly had was not over blaspheming against Caesar, it's blasphemy of the name of Yahweh. They were concerned their, their religious um, affections for God were being affected, for they understood or believed that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming a, a special relationship with God. And so the, the crime that Jesus had committed, according to these same Jewish people in Mark 14, was a crime of, of blasphemy. It was a religious crime. And so they were offended because they said, well, we're religious leaders, and so clearly we must rightly be offended But as they bring him to Pilate, that's not the language they use anymore, is it? For what do they clearly accuse Jesus of being or doing here in Mark 15? The key there is found in this title, the the king of the Jews. They clearly are saying, Pilate, he claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament language, you know that that sort of title could be used in in a high uh, manner, in a way that was worthy of praise, you can read passages like Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that the prophesied that the coming Messiah would be the seed of David. He would be this coming king. So the Jewish people clearly hoped for this righteous king that would be seen in the Messiah. And in fact, even in Jesus' triumphal entry, that same imagery is being used. But of course, this is not the sort of language the Jews are using. They're not using this in a messianic style, are they? They are appealing rather to their political concerns. No longer are they concerned Jews for the Old Testament law, now they're concerned good Roman citizens. And they're worried, Pilate, because this Jesus is trying to start up a rebellion against the Holy Roman Empire. Not holy, I guess, at this point in time. How dare he do this, Pilate? How dare he he go against you? They are using this language, no doubt because they understand that this was a real concern that Pontius Pilate and other Roman rulers would have. For Judea, as, as a geographical region was a tough place to oversee, there were numerous insurrections, as, as we'll see here in a moment with Barabbas. There are many Jewish people that attempt to lead a political coup, and on this particular week of the Passover, concerns for those revolutionaries would be particularly high, for put yourself in a Roman official's position. Here you are, a Roman official, sitting in Jerusalem, the Jewish people's most holiest of cities, And you understand full well that their celebration is that which honors their ancient past in which their God rescued them from the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And this entire celebration revolves around their hope of future deliverance from a wicked world. This entire holiday then reeks of great suspicion, reeks of of great political intrigue and perhaps insurrection. And so if you're Pilate, you are rightly concerned with the Jewish people over this holiday. Knowing this fact, the Sanhedrin uses this precious religious celebration to try to manipulate their Roman officials. They're playing this political game, believing that by doing so, Pilate would have no choice but to hand him over to be arrested and eventually to execute him. For in this day and age, the the crime of insurrection, the crime of treason, wasn't just a, a mere sentence in jail. No, this was high treason. This is capital punishment. For again, you have to remember how the Romans viewed their own king. He was God. He was the one to be worshipped. And so for another person to come in was, was not just a, a political opponent. It was the idea of a false religion coming into play. In fact, as you read on in church history, you understand that that is one of the primary concerns the Roman Empire had over Christianity. They were concerned that Christians were terrible citizens that were eventually going to try to overthrow Rome. That was one of their principal accusations against the Christians. You see then, these Jewish leaders using that suspicion to their advantage. As they make this accusation then, and as we continue, as they hurl other accusations against Jesus, they in essence pick up just where they left off in Mark 14, but with just a little bit more of a political flair to it. You can read other accounts of this trial and gospel accounts like the Gospel of Luke. And you see elsewhere that they make reference to Jesus commanding, supposedly, the Jews not to pay taxes to Caesar. And all these accusations, again, they're they're playing off of those same concerns. They're trying to paint Jesus as this political revolutionary figure. And their hope is they can stir up enough concern in Pilate's heart... Enough concern over a political rebellion that perhaps they would buy into these lies and have Jesus rightly punished. As we already mentioned, the accusations of these Jewish leaders here are clearly a fabrication. Even in Jesus' initial response to Pilate here in verse 2, when he says, It is as you say, commentators believe that, that Jesus in essence is saying, Well, yes, but clearly not the way they're saying Clearly, that's not a legitimate concern. And Pilate himself clearly doesn't believe it in the fact that he allows this trial to continue. But still, the the Jewish officials continue to bring up these complete lies. And as I mentioned earlier, this, this lying would be offensive enough for any individual, for lying is a sin, clearly. But for so called legal scholars, people who were experts on the Jewish law, this was a particularly heinous offense. For these individuals, the high priests, the scribes, all of these individuals would have no doubt had it memorized in books like Exodus or Deuteronomy and elsewhere where God clearly commands that you are to be truthful, especially in the court of law. You can read great numbers of details of those laws back in, say, Deuteronomy chapter 19 in which God tells his people, if you bring a false accusation against someone in court, say to have them executed, and it is proven that you've lied, you yourself ought to be executed. You yourself must bring upon the same punishment upon yourself that you are wanting for this person that you are falsely accusing. Lying in court, then, was was a serious and at times capital offense. And yet these Jewish leaders, of course, see no problem with it. They are blinded by their ambition, blinded by their fear of what Jesus represented. They're truly wicked. And yet as we consider their lies, we, of course, must understand that that in our own sin, we are not too far off from this at times. For so very frequently, we choose to sin fully knowing it is wrong, do we not? We choose to to lose our temper, we choose to lie, we choose to do that which we know is clearly commanded against in Scripture, and we do so because we think, well, I have no other options. This is it. We are so quick to justify it in a very similar way that the high priest would have justified it against Christ. You can think of the justifications we use, say, as parents when we lose our temper with our kids. We snap at them and we say, well, they had it coming to them. We justify this clear sin of anger. You hear it justified all the time in marriages when one spouse will gripe and complain and gossip about their spouse to to their friends. and The justification is what? Well, I I just need to vent. Uh, Well, my, my spouse is being a jerk. They're being a terrible spouse, so this is justifiable. Even though we know it's not. Perhaps it's at work, we're dishonest employees, and we say, well, I'm doing it just to get ahead. Whatever it is, we we do these certain things. We cheat, we lie, we steal, we do all these things, all the while justifying it the entire time. Because we think, well, the ends justify the means. As long as my end goal is good, I can do whatever I please. But in so doing, we find ourselves exactly in the same position as this wicked Sanhedrin who, although they know the truth, continue to move on as if it is some distant mystery to them. Pilate, of course, is not innocent in this, and we'll look at him later, but, but still, this, this wickedness of the legal team is incredible. And at first glance, it would be easy to think that this wickedness, and later on, the wickedness of the, the unruly mob is, is the most shocking thing here, but as we consider the words of the text, we see that the wickedness here is not that which is astonishing. In fact, Pilate himself was not amazed by the the lying of these these Pharisees of the Sanhedrin, for he no doubt heard this sort of stuff all the time. What amazed Pilate, and what should amaze and astonish us, is the role of Jesus in all of this, or the position of Jesus. Again, picking it back up in the text, in verses three through five, we read, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Again, this was not Pilate's first trial. He understood how these things worked. The prosecution, if you will, comes in, and they lay their case out before Pilate or whatever Roman judge is sitting before them. And then, in a somewhat familiar fashion as to today, the defendant is given numerous opportunities to defend themselves, to give their own case, to, to argue whether or not these accusations are legitimate. And you see Pilate here urging Jesus on. For Pilate knows this is a, a lie. Pilate knows, as well as the, uh, the other Roman officials that, that other gospel writers mention, they know these are trumped up charges. And so they're giving Jesus over and over again these opportunities to just prove himself, to defend himself. And yet, what does Jesus do? Nothing. He sits there silently. He gives one vague acceptance, initially there in 15, verse 2. But ultimately, instead of defending himself, there is this steadfast silence from Jesus. And the question Pilate asks, the same question we should ask is, why? Why would Jesus just sit there and do nothing? Stand up for yourself, Jesus. I mean, we've seen him do it elsewhere, have we not? So oftentimes throughout the Gospels, Jesus confronts these these religious leaders and he's able to do it with a single word. He can shut their mouth, shut their arguments immediately in any other context. We've seen him do it. And yet here, when, when it seems to be the most important moment, he does nothing. Why does he do that? Well, of course, we understand that in the midst of this story, that Jesus does this both because, of course, this is an unjust trial and he knows the end, but, but also because Jesus knows that the Sanhedrin isn't in control here. He knows that Pontius Pilate isn't in control here. He knows that this, this has not gone off the tracks. Jesus knows this is exactly the plan that he had set out as the Father had set out. He is silent because he's sovereign in all of this. Where you see references to this specific historical event. As far back as in Isaiah chapter 53, a a famous passage that speaks of the coming Messiah. Describing that Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53, I'll give you a moment to turn back if you will. You have a number of details that are given that describe this coming suffering servant, this Lamb of God that would be sacrificed. And in the middle of this description in Isaiah chapter 53, we see these words beginning in verse 7. He, that is, this coming servant, this coming Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due." His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he, was, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In describing this coming Messiah, the key here is this, this prophetic utterance regarding this, this coming silence of the Messiah. He would be like a lamb, like a sheep in the midst of its shear, in the midst of the one that is about to take its life, and yet the sheep would be silent. Here, as Jesus sits before the Roman ruler that will have the authority to hand him over for crucifixion, Jesus is a sheep before his executioner and he sits in silence. He does this because it's fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Not only that, he, he does this because it's in fulfillment of what Jesus Christ Himself has said over and over and over again in Mark. You see this in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10 and Mark chapter 14. Time and time again, Jesus is telling his disciples what? I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be handed over for the crucifixion. I'm going to be handed over so that I might suffer. I'm going to be handed over because that is what my entire purpose here is. Of course, in those moments, the disciples are blind. They are deaf to the comment. But the message is clear. The picture is clear. Jesus understood the path he was headed down. In that Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays the way he does because he knows what the wrath of God is. He knows that his slaughter is imminent. And so as he sits there silently, refusing to give a defense, he does so because he understands that God is sovereign in this moment, that this is his will, and there's no sense in fighting against it. For in so doing, he'd be going against his own teaching, his own message. So understanding that God is sovereign in this, understanding that it is his plan that's being carried on, understanding that it's not Judas handing him over, it's not the Sanhedrin handing him over, it's not Pontius Pilate handing him over, but it is God handing him over, Jesus Christ, the son of God, is silent. And in response to his silence, we see this incredible response of Pilate. For again, we read in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. This is a fascinating moment in the midst of this trial. For as the Sanhedrin is yelling insults at Christ, as there is the chaos of this courtroom drama, Pilate, is transfixed on this mysterious Jewish figure that he apparently knows nothing about. He's transfixed. He's confused because he's seen countless defendants just like Jesus in the past, but of course, those defendants were different. No, this figure is is different. He's unique. He is silent. and, And so Pilate is amazed. He marvels at this silent sheep. And in so doing, Pilate joins the countless others like him throughout the Gospel of Mark that respond in the exact same manner. For if you recall, throughout the Gospel of Mark, this is the common response of people, especially the first time they see Jesus, the first time they hear him speak. They're amazed. They're in awe of him. Whether it's in awe of his teaching with great authority, as we saw back in Mark chapter 1 and 2, or if it's in response to his miracles, to, to which the disciples and others at times would be terrified, but altogether amazed. Or if it's in response to his difficult teaching, whatever it is, time and time again, the masses like Pilate here are amazed by Christ. For at least for a brief moment, they, they see something different. They see something unique. And as I consider that response, I am honestly convicted for so frequently, I can read through these same accounts but I read it with somewhat of a calloused heart. I can read the account of of the trial, and I'm amazed by the Sanhedrin. I'm in awe of the violence of the crucifixion, but Jesus becomes this sort of background figure. I've heard of the miracles and the teachings of Jesus Christ so often, so many times, that I I can lose that sense of awe for him. And I think that is so oftentimes true for us who are familiar with Christ. Christ. We become so familiar with the story that we forget the the truly magnificent, awe-inspiring character here is not Pilate, it's not the Sanhedrin, it's not the the gruesome cross, it's the Son of God. He is the one that ought to cause us to respond in silence, awe, time and time again. And it is so easy to lose sense of that awe. And it's tragic because as you look through the gospel, you see that that awe is very easily lost and very quickly lost amongst the masses as well. For while the masses were awestruck by Jesus' miracles, and while they were awestruck by his authority, again, the vast majority of them have turned away from him at this point in time. Turned away. Pilate himself, for one fleeting moment, is rightly in awe of the Son of God, and yet the next moment, he is sending him away to the cross. The awe wears off. The fascination goes away, and what, what causes it? Well, difficult times cause it fear of man causes it a, a blind sense or a, blind, a, a blindness to the truths of God. Cause it. And as I consider that lost sense of awe, as I consider my own life, the question we must ask ourselves again is, is do we rightly stand in awe of Christ daily ourselves? Or do we allow the noise of the world around us to, to cause us to become deaf to it? Have we allowed other passions to, to overtake our passion for Christ? Have we allowed the ways of the world to blind us to the truth of the gospel? And in so doing, have we lost sight of the proper appreciation of this silent defendant, who although he sits silently, sits in a completely sovereign position, knowing full well what will happen because he, his father, are completely, entirely in control. Pilate understood this truth. So too must we work to remain in awe of Christ. Having said that, however, of course, we understand that this awe is fleeting. For while Pilate is briefly impressed by Christ, we see he is also very much aware of his difficult surroundings. When you read other gospel accounts, you read of how he attempts to unload Jesus off his hands and ship him off to another Roman ruler who was closer to Galilee, and perhaps he would judge him because, well, Jesus is a Galilean. But when that doesn't work, Jesus comes back and we see the next chapter unfold in this trial in which Pilate comes up with with a new shift in his own political strategy. Follow along with me in verse 6 of chapter 15 of Mark. There we read, Now at the feast he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as Pilate had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate is stuck. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but Pilate is terrified of these possible insurrectionists, these possible rebellious Jewish people. Pilate understands that the authority over him is going to be pretty upset if he allows us to get out of hand on on Passover week. And so Pilate Hatches an idea. He takes advantage of this historical tradition that apparently existed in this day and age in which Pilate, or any Roman official, it seems, could have released one prisoner to the Jewish people. And there's some debate as to why they would do this, and some people even suggest it's, it's a lie, but again, when you consider how high the tensions would have been in this week, this would have made sense for any Roman official. I and mean, anything you can do to to perhaps lower the temperature of their of their political gains or political aims, anything you could do to do that would, would be helpful. And so remembering that tradition, and it seems seeing the crowds that have already arrived to see whom Pilate would release, Pilate gives them an option. And he says, okay, crowd, you know of the tradition. You know I, I will release to you one. And so I'll give you a choice. You can either have Barabbas This insurrectionist, this murderer, this clear criminal who's already in prison, or you can have your king of the Jews. Now again, Pilate isn't professing faith in Jesus. He's simply trying to emphasize the fact that, hey, he's one of you. He's one of your own. He's done nothing. Which one do you want? Pilate, of course, believing that surely the crowd will not fall in line. Surely the crowd will choose the wise choice here. Surely they'll, they'll choose Jesus. And yet, the crowd responds in the complete opposite manner, for as the text picks up in verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Now again, if if you've heard this story before, oftentimes we respond in shock, as in, how could the crowd ever do this? I mean, Barabbas is a terrible person. Surely they were just blinded to this. Surely they, they didn't understand who Barabbas was. But it seems the crowd knew full well who barabbas was he was a well-known criminal it seems for in matthew in matthew chapter 27 the gospel author re- re- refers to Barabbas as the, a no- notorious criminal an infamous insurrectionist if you will this is a man who's done some terrible things he is a murderer he is a thief he is a hardened criminal but most importantly if you're a jew He's done all of these crimes as what? An insurrectionist. Which means where were his crimes directed against? Or what were they directed against? The hated Romans. This awful criminal, this awful murderer, was not necessarily a murderer of Jews. Ah, he's a murderer of the Romans. He represents one of these figures that would love to see a political coup, that would love to see a revolution. He's one of these figures that seems as trying to lead that revolution day in and day out. And so when Pilate asks them, who do you want more, I think it's pretty logical and pretty reasonable, pretty easily understood why the crowd chooses Barabbas. And in part it's because the chief priests rile him up, but in part it's because Barabbas really represents more of a messiah than most of the people wanted, to be honest. And compare Barabbas to Jesus... If you're a Jew, you want to escape Rome. That's your ultimate goal for most of them, it seems. In fact, you see the disciples pushing Jesus in that direction. They they want to see Jesus take over. But when Jesus is pushed on these political concepts, what does he do? He defers to Rome at times. When it comes to taxes, he says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar. Pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus? Really? Really? And when when Peter finally tries to take up arms and rescue Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he lops off the ear of the high high priest's servant. What does Jesus say? Oh, Peter, put your sword away. Really, Jesus? Put my sword away? I, I, I mean, given any opportunity, Jesus seems to go out of his way to try to encourage peace between the Jews and the Romans. He clearly is against this rebellion. He openly teaches against it. And you can understand in light of that teaching why the masses generally fall away from Jesus pretty quickly. For he's not going to do a thing for him when it comes to Rome. But here's Barabbas. Ah, here's Barabbas, and maybe he's a lawbreaker, but he's breaking it against the Romans. He's killing Romans. That's good. That's something we can get behind. And so they cry for his release and cry for Jesus' own punishment. And again, as as we consider this choice, even before we get to the cry for crucifixion, which is indeed shocking, we must consider again how easily we can fall into the same mob rule, the same mob mentality. For while we speak high things of Jesus, and we should speak highly of Jesus, let's face it, a lot of times we kind of wish for a leader that looks a little more worldly to us, don't we? We? We want someone that maybe will will be a little more aggressive in our minds. Someone who's willing to play the games that's played out on earth. We want someone that, that we can see as strong, as powerful, as intimidating. We love those leaders. As much as we speak of humility and the beauty of Christ, we still live in a culture that worships power and strength. And we love to see someone get overpowered. Just consider the language that's used in the political arena these days. We speak of our opponents getting destroyed. And we say, oh, my politician just destroyed that person. And we celebrate it. Because we say, yes, destruction, that's what we like to see. We praise it when we see those that we disagree with just get obliterated and humiliated. And we say, that's what we want, that's what we should be like. And while... Of course, confrontation is going to happen in this world. So oftentimes, we lift up and we praise these attributes that have nothing to do with Christ. Nothing. And without realizing it, without even fully understanding, it, I think if any of us were in this unruly mob, I think all of us would have been in favor of Barabbas, probably. Because Barabbas gets things done. And Jesus, well, what's he done? And so again, just as we looked at with the Sanhedrin, it's so easy to look back and think, oh, what a, what a foreign concept. I cannot imagine the level of wickedness the Sanhedrin is guilty of. In the same way as we look at this unruly mob, we can say, oh, how horrendous, how wicked, how could they ever choose Barabbas? Again, we must be quick to remember that we ourselves are reflected in that mob mentality. You hear the same language being used by the Apostle Paul when he describes humanity in, in passages like Romans. In Romans chapter 3, you have this language that perhaps we assume doesn't apply to us, but it certainly does, outside of Christ, that is. For Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, as it is written, beginning in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes This is you This is me this is all of outside of Christ this is us We are violent wicked creatures And when given the choice between war and peace, we choose war. And that is exactly what happens in Mark 15. When given the choice between the king of peace and an insurrectionist, the mob says, we want the insurrectionist. Because that's humanity. That's what we choose. And we see that their demand does not simply end with Jesus' arrest for in response to their call in verse 12, Pilate says to them, What shall I do with him whom you call the king of Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, then Pilate released Barabbas for them. And having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Here then is the fulfillment of exactly what Paul claims in Romans 3. Their feet are quick to shed blood. There's poison on their lips. They speak lies against Christ, and they demand his death. Why? Because he represents everything they hate. Because he represents sin, and his, he represents peace, and his, his image is, is a representation. It's a reflection of our own sin. It's a reflection of how, how lost we are. It's a reminder, rather, of the fact that we are desperately hopeless and wicked without him. And so they are not content with just shoving him into a dark corner. They demand him to be crucified publicly humiliated and executed. And despite Pilate's offer to them, despite seeing his own innocence, Pilate eventually says, okay. And he hands Jesus off. And once again, Jesus is delivered into the hands of the unrighteous to be brutally beaten, to be scourged. We don't need to get into bloody, gory details of what this included. We simply have to know that This is an incredibly horrific, violent act. And Pilate does it knowing full well that he does it to an innocent man. The Jews do it knowing full well he is innocent. Humanity happily hands Jesus over for he's not what they wanted. And it is at this point in time that Jesus will be prepared for his, of course, inevitable crucifixion. And all of this again then, The story is shocking, but not for the reasons that we often think. It is not shocking that wicked man acts wickedly. It's not shocking that violent people do violent things. That's not shocking. That's familiar. What is shocking is that we have a God that would love us enough to do this for us. What is shocking is that this is all according to a sovereign plan. What is shocking is that the Son of God sits silently as his creation Hurls insults at him. Jesus Christ willingly, for the joy set before him, carries forward with this plan of God to the point of being nailed to the cross. What is shocking is he does this both for God's glory, but out of love for us. He does it so that we could be delivered from this wickedness that nailed him to that cross. He does this so that we could be given life, so that our eyes could be open to that wickedness, our eyes could be open to His love. The question is, again, of course, have your eyes been open to it? Do you understand your need? For you who are here who are unbelievers, perhaps some of you come into the Christmas season with, with a proper sense of awe for what it represents. I hope you do. There are many unbelievers who, who love Christmas time, and they see it as... As kind of a picture of man's potential, they see it as a reminder of, of our need for peace, and, and so there is at least a minor sense of appreciation for who Jesus is. But please understand that if you just remain in that initial point of, of awe, you're still damned. You will not be allowed into heaven because you get to the gates and say, "Well, I was impressed by Jesus a few times. He said some neat things." Well, you're going to hell. And so my hope for you is not that you're simply struck by a sense of awe for Christ, although I pray that's it, but I pray that as you see this sheep that is silent before cheers, you are not seeing just a sheep, you're seeing the king of God's kingdom. And so the call from Christ here in Mark 15 is the same call from Christ in Mark 1. It is that the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe, unbeliever. Please repent and believe today. Please do not miss the entire point of Christ's birth and understand that it is this arrest, and his impending crucifixion, and ultimately in his resurrection, that salvation is open to you, but you must repent, you must believe. For us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, as we consider this text in Mark, let us be awestruck once again, not by the wickedness of man, but let us be awestruck by the righteousness of Christ. Let us respond in the way we ought to respond, and In so doing, let us marvel at this sovereign love of Jesus Christ that is fully on display. As we marvel at that, then let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that Jesus did not rise up at this moment and have humanity struck down as he could have in his holiness. Let us rejoice in the fact that Jesus continued to walk that path set before him as our sovereign savior. Let us rejoice in the fact that he was publicly humiliated and crucified, but ultimately let us rejoice because he was ultimately then resurrected from the dead. Let us rejoice that we worship a risen Savior. And in so doing, as we worship him, let us rightly prepare ourselves for this Christmas season as we celebrate that birth that led to this point in Mark 15. That being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, God. Truly the weakness of man is astonishing at times. But God, I pray that we all might humbly see ourselves in that wickedness this morning. Might we see that apart from your grace, this is us. Apart from your grace, we choose war every time. Apart from your grace, we choose violence every time. And yet, God, you've opened our eyes to that truth. And your son, Jesus Christ, who took upon the punishment that we deserved, has caused this to happen, God. Because of him, our eyes have been opened Because of him, many of us sit here this morning as redeemed and sanctified saints, God. For unbelievers who are here this morning, God, I pray for their salvation as always. God, I pray they might see their need of you. I pray they might understand that apart from Jesus Christ, they are doomed for hell. But I pray they see the offer of Christ's love in this passage this morning, God. And in so doing, I pray they might rightly respond as well in repentance and belief. God, cause us all to respond with proper awe in response to you and in response to your son daily. Jesus Christ, might we walk through our daily life awestruck by your beauty, marveling at your character, worshiping you with every word we say, with every breath that we take, God. We praise you, Jesus Christ, for you are our savior. Might we live our lives now in response to that. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things, amen.